0: Welcome everybody to the Sydney Environment Institute's 2021 podcast series exploring this year's NIDOC theme, Heal Country, Heal the Nation. I'm Christine Winter and I'm speaking to you from Gadigal Country. This is unceded country that was not bought nor negotiated for. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present and acknowledge their knowledge and their care for country and their millennia of connection with this place. In this second of our four-part series, I'm speaking with Nicole Graham from the University of Sydney's Law School. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you, Christine. Before we start exploring the ideas contained in Heal Country, Heal the Nation, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research and your teaching areas? Sure. Sure. So I'd like to start um, um, by
1: acknowledging country. Ninari Nyalawanyan, Mari Bajari, Gadi Thank you for having me, Christine, in the podcast series. I'm um, a, a scholar and a teacher in the Sydney Law School. My field of expertise is the intersection between private property rights and environmental regulation. Um, of land use practices. And in particular, I'm interested in the ways in which property rights are used as a shield against the broader public interest in land use practices. Um, And because I research and teach into this space, um, I have an abiding interest in property regimes that are successful. And um, I think we could broadly define successful property systems as those which have stood the test of time. And so we're very fortunate in Australia um, to, um, to be able to learn from a number of different um, property regimes from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations.
0: Okay, thank you Nicole and those of you who are listening now will realise why I thought Nicole would be an interesting person for us to engage with around this particular NIDOC theme. It's a theme that appears at first take to be simple and clear in country Heal the nation. However, maybe it's a provocative statement. It's a multi-layered challenge and invitation. That seems to me, it's asking the government and the people of this continent to think about who and or what country is and about countries, and I take country to mean the land, the animals, the plants, the waters, the people and the spirits that inhabit this continent and the knowledge and laws that have grown from them. It's asking us to think about countries and the nation's well-being in a new way, or perhaps in an old way, but a new way to settlers. So it's the Western way, the settler way, the Western legal structure that dominates in the nation of Australia. It is a Western view of what land, waters, plants, and animals and the spiritual are and what the human place is in the world. So, Nicole, can we start with the first part of the theme, Heal Country? Can you describe the legal relationship that dominates our relationships with land and how that promotes ill health, as it were, in country?
1: Um, Sure. So um, we could describe um, in theoretical terms, the um, model of property in Anglo-Australian law, the dominant legal framework, as a de-physicalised model of property. And what that means is that um, over a period of time, um, a long period of time uh, in England, there was a very um, profound transition from feudalism to capitalism. And obviously this took place over several centuries. It wasn't sudden. And central to that transition was the way in which land was conceptualised and regulated. Now, initially in the feudal era, um, land was not an object of property. So there was land law, but that was different to property law. So property law were objects and things, but land law was separate from that and it was regarded as the basis of complex social relationships Um, the basis of economies, um, power, uh, spirituality and so on. But with the transition to capitalism, that physical concept underpinning land law in England had to transform because capitalism could not work unless land could be alienated. And what we mean when we say land is alienated is literally made other from us separated from us and so with the alienation of land that attended capitalism and that supported and facilitated capitalism you have this shift in the way that you conceptualize property so property used not to include land and now property does include land so land is just one more object that can be um, transacted in in an economy um, in a capital economy and that de-physicalized model of property um, is, of course, uh, on the ships that reach the shores of Australia. And it comes off the ships in the form of um, a flag put in the sand, which would have seemed um, quite peculiar, Mm -hmm. Um, red, blue and white stripes on this little flimsy bit of fabric and stood in the sand. And that's so funny. And yet it also means that the land is um, now the sovereign's territory, so land forms two functions in colonisation. It performs the function at the level of international law, of sovereignty, um, as between other colonising nations of Europe. But then it also performs its, its fundamental purpose, and that is the basis of an economy. And so property law um, um, is exported and imposed, exported from England and imposed um, on the nations of Australia and it's um, fundamentally de so that even to this day, when we speak about um, land, it's not really relevant to law. It's not relevant to property law. What matters to the dominant property law system are property rights. And rights are abstract things. They don't really exist in the world. An archaeologist is never going to come back to Australia in a thousand years time and dig up and find some property rights in the ground. So property rights are in our minds, they're in our capacity to imagine. And we imagine relations between each other. We imagine relationships between human others. So we don't exchange property rights between non-humans, although in other parts of the world, notably our neighbours in New Zealand, they are starting to recognize rights in non-human um, uh, life forms and entities, but in Australia, that's not the case. So in Australia, property rights um, are transacted only between humans or abstract legal entities called legal persons, and that might be a company. So a company can have property rights, even though a company is also in our imagination and, again, not real. So I think fundamentally, Christine, we can characterise the dominant land law system in Australia as very abstract and very dephysicalised for which the land itself, the specificity of different kinds of landscapes and and waterscapes, doesn't really matter. It's legally not relevant. So where land and waters might be relevant, that is in relation to a different area of law that comes after planning law uh, or environmental law or natural resources law and so on. So fundamentally, um, place, land, waters are not material to property law in Australia.
0: So if property is abstract, are you suggesting then that is perhaps why um, there is ill health in country? Yeah,
1: because- that's right, Christine. That's, um, that's very much, um, I think, uh, an available observation. If you have a regulatory um, system, a property regime that regulates lands and waters but uh, at no point takes into account the quality or health or specificity or changes of those lands and waters, um, then that would lead to any kinds of outcomes, um, including adverse outcomes. And when I say not relevant, of course there are little things like um, boundaries. So we have doctrines of accretion and alluvian and these go to riparian boundaries of rivers and things like that. Um, And they're really confronting and they're really um, challenging to Anglo-Australian land law because Australian rivers don't work in a way that English rivers work. So our rivers disappear and they don't come back in the exact same place. They might come back in a slightly different place and sometimes they're not there for years and then other times they're like a lake. So even having English doctrines of... um, riparian doctrines that rely on physical qualities even that is difficult to transplant here because they don't adapt to the different physical environments
0: here that would make better sense of those ideas oh that's really interesting that's not something I, I had I really knew about at all so here's my question um I think what you are saying is that when Property is abstracted. It's abstract in terms of, now for lack of another way of saying it, because my vocabulary is probably not sufficient, it's abstracting it as points on a map, as absolute points of latitude and longitude, so that a riparian right re- relates to. An an absolute riverbed, an absolute river stream. But without those absolutes, it can't work. Is that what you're
1: saying? That's right. That's right. So cartography um, and the technology of surveying um, are really important to the description of parcels of land and boundaries. And, of course, cartography is its own process of abstraction and surveying is its own technology of abstraction as well. Um, And it is really interesting when you look back in English land law when you see that transition um, from land that was not alienable. So in the feudal era, there was no such thing as a land market. Um, There were land grants by the Crown and it was based on favour and social hierarchies and so on. Um, And that transition to making land saleable necessarily involved um, identifying boundaries. Um, So it's really interesting um, that to sell and to transact land, you need some certainty. And um, the certainty began, so before uh, maps and things like that, it began with physical features. So it would be um, trees and um, contours and valleys and um, dales and so on uh, and fens and forests. Um, but then when they were deforested or drained or whatever and you start to have um, fences, where do you put the fences and how do you map them? So that's a really interesting time in English history. And I note recently um, a wonderful mathematician at UNSW has found um, that trigonometry was actually invented a 1,000 years earlier than we thought, and it was invented in modern-day Iraq by the Babylonians for the purposes of surveying land for transacting private property. Um, so it's really interesting to see how, in Western culture, going back um, a couple of thousand years, um, there's a there's a preparedness um, to to um, commodify land and to trade um, land as a good, as though it's a you know a different kind of good, but still a good that can be quantified and um, have a price attached to it and traded. And that's really different um, to the much older uh, land law system in Australia where we are now. So in relation to this concept of healing, um, Christine, uh, I do think that fundamentally you can't begin to heal something um, until you can diagnose um, what the the sickness is. And I do think that the sickness um, in Australia is the dominant um model of property um, what's wrong with that model is that it really is not about land so it would be great if land didn't exist and it was a model for an abstract thing but it's an but it's a model of a real life thing without taking into account um, that materiality so it's very hard for this property regime to do a good job because it's too young it hasn't adapted and developed um, into a sophisticated Um, place-based model that is responsive to actual real concrete conditions and limits. Um, So I guess for me, healing would depend very much on uh, being able to uh, acknowledge and accept this diagnosis, that the model is um, not yet ready. It's, It's got a way to go. It's very young. So even though when I'm speaking about the transition to feudalism, to capitalism, and in our minds, we think, gosh, that's a long time ago, that's a tiny amount of time to go ago in, if you think about property regimes all around the world in human history, and, and even right now, all over the planet, there are some really amazing property regimes that have been around for a really, really long time, a lot longer um, than the sort of Western
0: model. So there's a real irony there, isn't there, in that there was... Uh, there existed a very old, a very well thought through, a very effective, um, for lack of another term, property regime that is a careful country that has then been cast aside <clears throat> and um, ignored largely, in fact, significantly ignored by a system that is much younger and which you um, analyze as being um, immature in a way, immature in its ability to actually care for country. So, I guess my question then moves to: Well, what is required of the law to facilitate healing, to facilitate um, care for country? So, um, I think if the
1: if the problem or the diagnosis of the sickness is that the model that you've got, um, that the therapy or the medicine that you're using is not um, appropriate for this situation, then you want to be looking around for different models or different medicines, um, different practices. And I guess that's um, uh, a lot easier in Australia than it would be if um, the British had arrived to a continent that had nobody here. But because that wasn't the case, because there are hundreds of um, nations across the continent and the islands, um, there is literally an abundance of property regimes that um, were highly functional and um, the knowledge of those regimes persists. Um, It doesn't persist in the same way that it did pre-colonisation and there has been a loss and when I say a loss, I don't mean to describe that passively. There's been a destruction of um, um, land laws, um, act- an active destruction and rejection of them. Um, for example, this year is the 50th anniversary of the first land rights case, the Malipum and Nabalco case. And um, that case is the first time that in law Aboriginal people were um, Uh, arguing against the government um, that their lands weren't for bauxite mines. Uh, And they were not listened to and their um, claim was rejected actively uh, in the 20th century, uh, well into the 20th century. So we can see that um, healing now, as a question, Um, that's an urgent question. So if you want to know how your property regime is going, open a window and look outside it. You can tell a lot about your laws by the landscape. And um, the landscape is not in a good condition. And uh, so there is some urgency, um, Christine, to answering this question about healing. And so it's not as easy as um, a quick borrowing from the legal cultures of nations that have been Um, colonised and dispossessed. It's not simple and it's not easy. Um, The Australian economy now depends very largely on um, mining and um, that fundamentally is a very difficult land use practice to remediate and even though there are some environmental and planning laws that require um, the rehabilitation of mined landscapes, we find that those orders um, are not coming through and so those mining companies are not Rehabilitating the land, despite um, an on paper legal obligation to do so, that's not being enforced. So we really do, before we can get to a a good model, we have a long way to go to start unpicking the damage of the current model. Um, One thing that I think scholars working in this field um, share a view on, um, this is all around the Anglophonic jurisdictions of the world, is that fundamentally property rights are separated out from responsibilities in Western law. And so maybe one of the first steps that would be helpful to take here would be to integrate um, land use responsibilities with land ownership. And so you could return to a position where the word ownership means what it means in in common parlance. So when we say take ownership for your actions, you know, I own that, um, that mistake. Uh, That means to take responsibility, whereas I think in the legal regime, ownership does not yet include responsibilities. And because they're carved out as these two separate um, little sub-disciplines of law, I think that's a good place to start. So that, for example, with the Torrance title, you go and look up your title to land and the rights that you have in it, the easement and whatever, and maybe on that register you could also see responsibilities attaching to that, the trees that you cannot chop down without permission and so on. Um, the water that you're not allowed to uh, contaminate or whatever. So we have a long way to go to even paying attention to the system that we have, um, and we can learn a lot um, from uh, Aboriginal laws. But the problem is, is that the Aboriginal laws are place-based. So you wouldn't have a, you wouldn't have a revolution and go right. So all of New South Wales now can have this property law because there's forests, Alps, deserts. I mean, New South Wales is a very big. Um, land area, there's not a property law that would one size fits all for that whole state, but at the moment the Anglo Australian property law is state based, so
0: this would be a more complex rearrangement process. It's very interesting, yes, it would be complex, I guess, and that it, um, will make um, make governments resistant to, to acting, paralyse them, as it were. I just want to pick up on a couple of things that you've said. Um, the first one is around um, the idea of of attaching responsibilities to um, to the rights of of title, and you you describe um, you know for instance that one has a responsibility to to keep a forest intact or a responsibility to keep a river um, pristine as it were clean and unpolluted. When you think of responsibilities within um, title, would you see an attached right of government? remove that title if you abused it rather than just fine you for it because you know fining yeah. is using, again going into the abstract using money which is a, again an abstract concept um, or would you see there being something that is actually a more material in the sense that if you abused your responsibilities the government would have a right to um, remove your title from you
1: Yeah, that's a great question, um, Christine, and there are some really interesting legal um, parallels here. So if we stay with the metaphor that I introduced earlier about um, owning responsibility, um, we can think too about something in our society that we really care a lot about a lot, and that's children. And in Australia, it has been said that the standard of anglo australian society in relation to childcare is so high that if you neglect your children or they are harmed um, in your care by you or or just in your care that you might forfeit your rights as a parent or carer and those children might be removed from you. And As we know in relation to the stolen generations and continuing into today, children are removed from Aboriginal families um, under the discourse that we care about children and we place a very high value on the care um, of children. Now, if we were to place a similarly high standard of care on the landscape, on the quality of waters, on the Murray-Darling Basin, and we said to irrigators, the water quantity and quality is adversely impacted by your industrial scale land use. Therefore, you have forfeited the rights persisting under your water license. Um, Can you imagine the outcry? And so I think, you know, it's revealing to us a double standard. So on the one hand, there is a lot of discourse around how um, uh, various industries, agricultural industry in particular, um, they use the words even custodians and carers of land. um, And they talk about sustainable agriculture and things like that but we are yet to see um, in any institutional or formalised way, a standard set of care for land, which if breached would result in a forfeit of that right. And so I think if you really, really mean um, that there is such a thing as a high standard of care for something like land or waters, whatever, you would attach legal obligations and requirements that would result in outcomes like that and we do have that in the legal system in relation to children to human beings uh so uh, it would it would be worthwhile to consider that and i do think that the, that christine you would not be robinson crusoe in suggesting that maybe if you're not if there's evidence that you're not taking care of the land maybe you're forfeiting that right and i think that's a pretty Easy and straightforward solution. Um, if we think about it from an ownership point of view, that you have to be a worthy owner mm-hmm. and a responsible well, owner.
0: Yes, exactly. It seems to me too. I'm just, I'm just thinking through your, um, your, your uh, child removal parallel. You know, the idea that if, if we don't care for our children sufficiently, they can be taken. And that I think has been. Um, also um, translated into the care of of particularly highly sentient animals, hasn't it? So uh, people can be um, fined for and have their mistreated dog or mistreated horse taken from them. So it seems that we're inching into um, that concept of uh, taking responsibility for the non-human realm, at least with Um, those creatures that seem more like us.
1: Yeah, and just to pick up on another point that you raised, Christine, um, so uh, this is people who've who've, uh, learned a little bit about property law or or law might, or or speak Latin, um, might know that real property and real estate uh, is legally different to personal property and other forms of property like intellectual property and so on and stocks and shares. So an an interesting point about that is that the whole reason that we created this category of real property being separate to personal property and other forms of property is because a very long time ago, it was thought that if you have a dispute about land, you don't want to be compensated for it. It's a bit like a line out of the castle. You can't pay me for what I've got. There's no money that will compensate me for the loss of my land. And actually the remedy in real property estates is supposed to be the restoration of your right to the land. Uh, But we've had the Torrance system for a long time in Australia and we are regarded internationally as innovators in property law because we introduced this fantastic system which was supposed to be fraud proof and it was a register and you just write it down and you don't need to look for crummy old bits of paper that may or may not have been fraudulently produced. And unfortunately, the effect of this is a further abstraction of property so that now we have a thing uh, in New South Wales called the assurance fund, which means that if there is some fraud or stuff up or something goes wrong with your title and for whatever legal reason you cannot get your land back or your property back, you can be compensated for it. And so we've reached that point now where the meaning of even real property Has come to an end, where we have at the heart of the Torrent system a concept of an assurance fund so that notwithstanding any um, um, true right that you might have, because of the need to keep the system and the register working and sort of reliable, we'd rather pay you for your land than to see you get it back. So I guess that's another thing, Christine, is that fundamentally we have reached the end of the line in seeing. Anything special about land in from a legal point of view, and we can really just give you some money and that'll that'll be an equivalent to the land itself. Um, from the Yongu point of view, which is the claimant group in the Malipum and Nabalko case, um, that came up in the evidence and the claimants said that would be repugnant to us the idea of compensation, the idea that we would sell the land, um, that's uh, that's illegal (laughs) in Yolngu law. So we're not talking about slightly different property regimes. We're talking about antithetical property regimes. So in terms of healing nation, um, healing country, there is a lot to be learned from, um, for example, um, Yolngu land law. But what you're learning is the complete inside out of what you have. And so that, that education will take a long time. And unfortunately, uh, in relation to this concept of healing, time is running out. The lease is short. And um, humans have to learn um, within human lifetimes uh, in our culture. But in Yongu culture, the learning goes intergenerationally so we now have farmers in New South Wales and Victoria and wherever who say oh gosh I wish that I could have learned what the Aboriginal people who were dispossessed from my farm knew about this land because it's taken me 40 or 50 years of very hard lessons to get it right and now I think I've got a little bit of understanding and these things are working on my farm but oh my god how much would I know and what could I do if I had all of that learning and all of that knowledge. So I guess that's the other problem, is that there's a lot of learning to do, but we have to hurry up because uh, we don't have many lifetimes ahead of us um, to restore um, uh, landscapes and and waters.
0: Thank you, Nicole. Um, The second second thing that I wanted to go back to from an an earlier discussion, uh, earlier part of this discussion, um, You mentioned Aotearoa New Zealand. I'm from Aotearoa New Zealand um, and I am of uh, Maori ancestry. So in Aotearoa New Zealand there have been moves to give some significant geo-regions their own, what's been labelled, personhood. So using corporate law structures to embed the rights of the Whanganui River, Te and shortly uh, Taranaki Maunga, their own personhood, their own interests in themselves outside of property rights. That's blending two completely incommensurate ways of understanding the world. So do you see hope in those sorts of mechanisms? Is it possible for us to transfer that sort of idea, or the ideas that come from the rights of nature movement, into Australian law and Australian care for country.
1: Yes, thank you, Christine. I might be um, disappointing you and your listeners on this point. So, I am an I am a long-standing um, critic of the rights to nature movement um, for a reason, and that is because. Um, As a privileged, um, educated white woman, and I'm I'm conscious of my privilege, I I am uh, a very strong critic of the concept of a right. So for me, rights is the problem. Lots of entitlement. This is mine. That's my right to this, my right to that. And it seems to me as though even though theoretically rights should be universally enjoyed. In practice, rights are mostly enjoyed by people who probably never needed them. And so I am very genuinely concerned about extending the problem to non-human world, because I'm enough of a pragmatist and I've got my case law down. So I know that if there were to be a contest between a legal person that's not a human being and a human being, I wouldn't put my bet on the non-human party winning. And so for me, it extends the problem further. I would like to see a contraction, not an extension, of rights. And I do I do appreciate that it is a source of hope for many people across the world um, because it allows a transition from what um, dominates to something alternative and I think that there is hope in in seeing that happen in real life so seeing this legislation being passed in the constitution in Bolivia um, being enshrined that is a cause for hope because you're seeing institutional recognition of an alternative Uh, so to that extent uh, I am um, appreciative of the hope that rights to nature um, inspires But at the same time, for me, it's a very, very cautious and qualified hope, Mm -hmm. uh, because if entrenched, when you inevitably reach the point of a dispute, say, for example, in New Zealand, between dairy farmers uh, and the river, uh, who will prevail? And I would say will be the farmers, um, because elections are won and lost on votes by humans. So I think we need to remember the role of democracy here. So the governance system of um, New Zealand and Anglo-Australia is a democratic system and the the um, franchise, um, the voting, takes um, the form of humans voting. And in fact, in Malipum and the Balco, um, a very amazing quote I uh, would like to share, Um was from Justice Blackburn and he said, the evidence shows a subtle and elaborate system highly adapted to the country in which people led their lives, which provided a stable order of society and was remarkably free from the vagaries of personal whim or influence. If ever a system could be called a government of laws and not of men, it is that shown in the evidence before me. And I think that really for me, captures why I'm not a fan uh, of an extension of rights because fundamentally it remains a a government of of men and not a government of law. And for uh, many successful property regimes, the laws actually come from the land, not from the humans. And I do think that if they are successful and their track record is so long
0: and um, it probably is worthwhile taking them seriously... Indeed, Nicole, and um, I don't think you need to think we're disappointed. It's very important that um, any ideas that we have around um, how we protect the uh, the planets, the planetary system, or the non-human realm, or the more-than-human realm, there are a whole bunch of ways of trying to identify um, that which isn't the cultural realm. Um, I think it's very important that they're interrogated constantly because we've made so many messes up already. Um, So no, you didn't disappoint me. Um, Can we just, we're we're coming sort of towards the end of our time, and I'd like to move to the second half of the statement, heal the nation. So heal country, heal the nation. That suggests that the nation, sort of the whole combination of people and animals and plants and waters and seas and land and our spiritual connections are in some way unwell or are ailing or are sick, perhaps injured is the best word, and you've certainly talked a lot about ways in which it is ailing. But it also seems a little bit odd, given that this is a rich nation, it's a vibrant nation, it's successful on all conventional Western or international measures. So in what way is the nation ailing? Is it sick? What does it need to heal from? What do we see as the ailments of the nation? Um, Well, look, I think that um, when we remember that um,
1: measures of... uh, Uh, national success or the success of a nation, particularly in relation to the um, World Bank um, and its projects um, in relation to property regimes. Interestingly, uh, the World Bank goes around and setting up private property regimes where there were none um, and holding it up as a model. I think when we think about the metrics used to, um, to evaluate nations, they are also abstract measures of economic growth. And um, I think uh, her name is Hurley Walker, Professor Hurley Walker. Um, She's an astrophysicist. And I remember listening to her on Radio National one evening, and she was talking about the the absurd, um, funny, except it's serious model of economic growth being infinite, Um, because just in terms of where we are as a planet in the um, universe, there's no such thing. And um, so we are measuring our success based on a fantasy and it's a very young fantasy and it's lovely. You know, like lots of children, there's so many beautiful dreams and myths and they're lovely, but they have to be recognised as stories and myths and aspirational. It would be nice if we could live forever and grow forever and no one would be sick and harmful. But uh, I think a very mature and experienced um, uh, sort of, evaluation would say that um, there are risks, there are problems, there are storms, there are disasters. And uh, measuring national success based on uh, um, GDP, for example, um, trade balance sheets, I think that they are problematic because Australia has um, an extraordinarily rapid decline of biodiversity. Uh, We know that the economic um, d- risks and damage of this is um, is extraordinary and, and bad. And I think that uh, it goes without saying for many people who are familiar with the New South Wales, Victorian, South Australian economies that the Murray-Darling Basin um, decline um, is deeply problematic um, to many um, Um, economies, local regional economies, and to national um, agricultural output. We have the additional problem of um, the decline, the catastrophic decline of the Great Barrier Reef, um, and all of the the income that the reef generated by people just wanting to go and see it and swim in it. Um, So uh, look, I think that on many measures in relation to soil health, water quality, biodiversity, um, Australia is falling over and fundamentally if we remember the Greek origin of the word economy which is oikos, o-i-k-o-s, the flip side of economy is ecology and it means keeping your house in order. So as a property researcher I have to say that Australia's house is not in order. It's a bit of a mess. We've got a clean up our room, have a bit of a spring clean, um, we really, really need to start um, getting our head out of the fairy tales. And it's lovely to think that economies economies grow forever, but they do not. And they are fundamentally based in ecologies, and if your ecology is ailing, uh, then your economy will be ailing, and then all of the things that you enjoy, clean drinking water, um, food, Um, will become problematic and I can't see how organised human society, um, which Australia has supported for millennia um,
0: is something to look forward to if we cannot heal uh, the nation. I think that's a wonderful place to end on, although it's a wee bit depressing, you're also um, adding a very strong call to us all to really think very hard about the way we structure our society, the way we structure our economy, the way we structure our laws, and to invite us all, I think, to think um, more deeply about what property law does and what property law might do uh, to care for country and to heal the nation. So, Nicole, is there anything you would like to add? Anything um, that I haven't provoked you to say that you'd really like to say? Or have you run out of (laughs) path? No, I've got one um,
1: um, small thing, but it's a big thing to say. And that is that um, what's very striking when I read evidence of um, non-Anglo-Australian landlords, when I read evidence of um, native title claimants and the Yolngu people, what I see in the evidence is um, something sadly missing in Anglo-Australian law, and that is love. There is such a deep love of country, and it's very strong, and the emotions are very clear. It's not um, present in Anglo-Australian law at all. And so I, I think the last thing that I would like to say, even though it's a small thing, is that. When you're healing someone else or when you're healing yourself, it starts from the premise that you want to get better and or you want that person to get better because you love them. And I think that if we want our country to heal, we have to love it first. And we have to ask ourselves, is this country worth healing? Do we love it? And if we don't love it, then I think, you know, does we, the country doesn't deserve us and we don't deserve this. I mean, you know, it really is fundamental. So that's the last thing I'd like to say is that um, where's the love?
0: Mm, thank you. Where is the love indeed? Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for a really engaging conversation. It's been absolutely superb and I'm sure uh, a lot of people are going to get a lot from it. So thank you. Thanks very much, Christine. It's been lovely talking with
1: you you too.